Last week we were in uh, Genesis chapter 45, the, actually the previous two weeks, the first half of the chapter, looking at verses 1 through 15. And uh, this week I'd like to pick it up with verse 16 and, and try and get us down through the end of the chapter. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> let's go back though and just kind of review what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks in that first half of the chapter. Look down through those verses 1 through 15 and kind of crank up those little gray cells and tell me what you can remember that we've talked about or what you've been thinking about since we've talked about it, about uh, those, uh, those verses. So we so we got to we got to do something besides just have a happy family reunion here. We need to yeah we need to make some plans for the future. What else? Y'all are an awful quiet group today, but it isn't going to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There at the at the end of the passage, we we see that, that reconciliation has transpired and the brothers are actually having a conversation together, which they've never been able to do before. Uh, they, they were unable, it says in chapter 37, to speak a kind word to Joseph. And so this is the first time that the brothers and Joseph have been able to have this kind of a, this kind of a conversation. What else? A lot of times we see that. A lot of times we do that, don't we? Yeah, yeah. There's no I told you so here. Uh, none of that. He doesn't remind them of his dreams. Uh, there, there's none of that going on. We, what we see with Joseph is, is just a... Uh, a freedom of forgiveness. What did we learn about forgiveness last week as we talked about it? What stands out about the way that Joseph forgave his brothers? He initiated it. Is he reluctant? He's not reluctant at all, is he? It's, that's the thing that just that is so striking to me about Joseph's forgiveness. It is just like it's just like a, a dam breaks. You know, after Judah's speech uh, there at the end of chapter forty-four, it's just he cannot contain it anymore, and it just it just comes out like a flood. And and what strikes me about that it is it is so unlike so much of what we see of forgiveness today, and oftentimes what we see in our own lives. Sometimes we have to be pushed and prodded and exhorted and pled with to forgive. And there's none of that with Joseph. It's just he's ready to forgive. He's eager to forgive. And as soon as as soon as he has the confirmation from Judah that they're in a place to receive forgiveness, it just comes out. He cannot control it. And it comes out in this loud weeping that is that uh, the people who have left the room can hear. And even the, the word gets to Pharaoh's house about his loud weeping because this, there's just this outpouring of emotion, just like a, a, a dam breaking in, in, in Joseph. What else? We talked about Joseph's heart being in a place where, in some sense, it... We don't know for sure, but it may not have mattered in one sense what his brother did. His heart was still right. Yeah. And when he saw the proof that they had changed and repented, then he was able to express that. Yeah. 
to them yes. and make amends. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting. He part of the, we didn't talk about this, but part of the proof of verse twelve. He he said, "Your eyes see in the eyes of my brother Benjamin." Mm-hmm. Benjamin's name hadn't been used up to this point. Oh, that's true. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Kind of proving that he knows who these, these people yeah. are. Yeah. If there was any doubt left at that point. Yeah. And then when they went on, it was interesting that he and Benjamin both left when they hugged each other. But the rest of the brothers, it doesn't say they did. So yeah. I, I'm not sure what to make of that. If they weren't quite emotionally involved at that point or something, I'm not sure. We talked about that a little bit. You may have slipped out of the room by that time, but <clears throat> but we did talk about that a little bit. It, it, it is striking to me in this story that it's the one doing the forgiving who is weeping. Uh, and and I, I, don't, I don't mean to imply by that that the brothers were unappreciative of the forgiveness. But it just, it just tells us something about Joseph. How glad he was to forgive. How glad he was that the barrier that separated him from his brothers is broken down. And he is just so relieved at that 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 he's weeping and, and like you say we don't know whether the brothers wept or not it doesn't say whether they did but but that that's that tell that also tells me something about forgiveness and it tells me something about God's forgiveness for us, to us that he is much more thrilled with the ability and the freedom to forgive us than we are and he feels it. He feels the relief and the joy of reconciliation far greater than we do. You know, it's just—it's really a striking lesson, I think, in the nature of forgiveness and the nature of God's forgiveness, isn't it? Well, I know for me, when I first was saved, I, it was very joyful. But the more I understand it, the more I know, the more I'm inclined to weep. Yeah. It. Yeah. And maybe that's what's happened with him. Maybe they don't really yeah. capture yeah. the full significance of this whole forgiveness. Yeah. yeah. Well, and as we will see much later in the story, they still have some questions <laughs> about how extensive that forgiveness is. And, uh, and that's a parallel with our experience, too, isn't it? Oftentimes we, you know, we know we've forgiven and God, we're forgiven and God's told us we've been forgiven. But sometimes we harbor reservations that need to be worked through. But we'll get to that much later in the story. But well, let's pick it up in uh, in chapter forty-five or sixteen, then, and uh, and go down through the rest of the chapter. And what I, I'd like to do today is I'd like to uh, just look at the story as it unfolds uh, for for a while, just kind of remind ourselves of the story or familiarize ourselves with the story. And then I'd like to go back and look at what have been to me this week as I've been thinking on this passage have been to me a number of striking parallels with the gospel that we see in the story here of uh, Joseph, uh, Pharaoh's instructions to Joseph and Joseph's instructions to his brothers and then his brothers return to Canaan and their encounter with Jacob in Canaan. And I just as I read the story and meditated on this week and studying, I just kept coming across these various parallels. Uh, and, and so I'd like to look at those this week. But before we do, let's just look at the story and, and familiarize ourselves with what happened. So it begins in verse 16 now after his brothers and he have been reconciled and they've been talking together. In verse 16, it says, Now when the news uh, was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat of the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourselves with your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. 
To each of them he gave changes of garments. But to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on, his, on the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, Do not quarrel on the journey. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. They told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. My son Joseph is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Well, it's of course a... It's a powerful story. It's, it's what we've been waiting for for 22 years, right? <laughs> All these months that we've been studying the story of Joseph, this is what we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for Jacob to finally hear that Joseph is still alive. And in this passage, in this passage he finally hears it. Um, it starts out, of course, with the news coming to Pharaoh's household that Joseph's brothers have come and that Joseph, I don't know how much of the story they're told, but that Joseph is reconciled with his brothers. Uh, certainly, Pharaoh knew that Joseph had come into Egypt as a slave. And uh, so, certainly, uh, Pharaoh is probably thrilled that now his brothers, who, uh, who he's not seen in 22 years, are now, they're now uh, together again. And, and uh, like I say, I don't know what all Pharaoh knew, but... He, what strikes me here, or what stands out to me here, is that Pharaoh's pleased. And all of Pharaoh's servants are pleased at this news that Joseph's brothers have come. Why would Pharaoh care? They cared about Joseph. <laughs> they cared about Joseph. Remember earlier, Joseph had said, he said, I am as a father to Pharaoh. So there's this affectionate relationship between Joseph and and Pharaoh, and so whatever's good for Joseph, uh, Pharaoh is thrilled with and is pleased with. So Pharaoh and all of his servants, his his aides and his, and, and and his attendants or whatever, they're all thrilled to hear that Joseph's brothers has come, have come, and then there's this great uh, family uh, reconciliation and family reunion. So they're all very pleased about that. And then Pharaoh says to Joseph, he says, say to your brothers, and he gives Joseph some instructions. He's going to extend a personal invitation to Joseph's brothers and their families and their father to come to Egypt. And not just to come to Egypt, but notice it says to come to me. So this is a personal invitation from Pharaoh to the family of Joseph to come to him, to come to Pharaoh, to come to Egypt. Right? And... Uh, and and he's, he's very clear that he's being very generous. He says, you come and I'm going to give you the best of the land. I don't know if Pharaoh knew yet that Joseph had already promised them Goshen. Uh, but he, he says, I'll give you the best of the land and you will have uh, the fat of the land to eat. And, you know, just, you know, this is such a contrast to the environment that they're in. Yeah. There they are in Canaan. They're in, a, they're, in, they're in the middle of a world that is ravaged by famine and everybody around them is starving and they've been living from hand to mouth for the last couple of years and just wondering how they were going to make it through. And now they are promised this luxurious living situation where they will be eating the fat of the land of Egypt. And, and this is all because of the generosity of Pharaoh. But then he says something else because he's already made this invitation, almost a command. He says, do this. He, so he's told him, you go back, you get dad, and you get the family, you get the kids, and you bring them all back. Okay, I'm going to give you all this. And then he says, uh, in verse 19, he says, now you are ordered. 
do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt. And so he gives uh, he gives a specific order here. OK, now, I don't know how many orders Pharaoh has been given for the last uh, nine years because he's given most of that responsibility <laughs> to Joseph. But these wagons begin to take an important part in the story. And we'll get to that as we go on. But he says, I want you to take those wagons of Egypt and I want you to take them down, take them up to Canaan and, and give them for your children to ride on. Now, these wagons were uh, uh, apparently uh, re- relatively, they were kind of like small carts. They were two-wheeled carts uh, that uh, were used primarily for transporting people. Okay. Uh, so, and they were designed specifically to be able to, uh, to move across areas like desert and, and flat ground, things like that, but, but areas where there are no roads. Okay. So, so if you think about a two wheeled cart designed for carrying people that can go anywhere, you know, off the roads or not, what kind of a wagon or cart is that? (laughs) A tank. Well, that's a clue. That's a clue. It's like a chariot. Right. Okay. And when we think of chariots, what do we think of? We think of war. Okay. Now, what's interesting is that this is uh, this is the first encounter we have with wheeled vehicles in the book of Genesis. Right. We haven't had this before. We've got all kinds of people going everywhere and carrying families and transporting. And we've not had any mention of wheeled vehicles until this point. And it's interesting that that carts even need to be sent to Canaan. Presumably, if Canaan had carts, they wouldn't need any carts to carry their little ones. But apparently, Pharaoh is concerned that they don't have a way to transport their little ones and their little ones and their wives are going to have to walk all the way to Egypt. And Pharaoh's concerned about that. And so he says, we'll send you our carts. We'll send you our wagons. Okay, but. But although Joseph has been free to to uh, dispense and give out all kinds of goods and whatever for them to take back to Canaan, and we'll see that he does that. He gives them food and he gives them clothing and he gives them all kinds of the one thing he cannot do without the command of Pharaoh is to send wagons. Now, why would that be? Okay, because it's military equipment. This is a national security item. Okay, and you don't put something that's critical for your national security in the hands of foreigners to take to a foreign land. You don't just do that. Okay, so it's apparent that what's going on here is that Pharaoh has to give the command because these carts can't just be sent anywhere and 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 if we and and because we see that apparently there are not available wheeled vehicles or carts or that of this nature available in the land of Canaan we can assume that Egypt has a military advantage over the countries around them because they have what the other countries don't have are these these very versatile two-wheeled carts for transporting their soldiers and, and, and their officers and that sort of thing, okay? So these are apparently the wagons that are being given to Joseph's brothers to take back to the land of Canaan to transport their little ones and their wives, okay? So he gives that command to take these wagons and, and then he gives them a specific instruction about the things back home. And what does he tell them? Just leave it. Don't worry about it. Don't be concerned about all your stuff back home. He says, we've got all you need here. So don't concern yourself with all that stuff back home. Just bring your families, bring your kids, bring your dad and come and we'll take care of everything you need. They had quite a bit. They, a bit. they were quite wealthy. That's right. <clears throat> so they uh, they had quite a bit. So. Uh, and so it says that Joseph did uh, what he uh, Joseph and the brothers did as as uh, Pharaoh had instructed, and Joseph gave them uh, uh, down in verse twenty one. Joseph gave them wagons uh, according to the command of Pharaoh. There again, you'll notice that it's associated with Pharaoh's command, 
and he gave them provisions for the journey. And then what did he give them? Uh, before the donkeys, for the, for the brothers, what does he give? Uh, changes of clothes. He gives them changes of clothes. So to each, he gave changes plural. So I'm assuming he gave uh, uh, probably two changes of clothes to each of the brothers. But to Benjamin, he gives what? Five changes of clothes and 300 pieces of silver. He just in one fell swoop makes Benjamin rich. Okay, uh, but but this thing about these garments is fascinating. Because you remember one of the things we've talked about as we've gone through this whole narrative of Joseph is the theme of garments all the way through the narrative. Remember? Starts clear back in chapter 37 with the coat of many colors or the regal garment that his father had made for him and that he wore and became that source of jealousy and conflict within the family. Okay? And then when Joseph is sent up to Shechem to find his brothers and eventually has to go on to Dotham to find him and he finds his brothers at Dotham, what do they do when they encounter Joseph? They strip him of his garments. They strip him of his coat and they throw him in the pit and then eventually sell him into slavery. And then what do they do with the coat? They put blood on it. Presumably they tore it up a little bit and they put blood on it and they take it back. Okay, And that's kind of our first encounter with this idea or theme of, of garments or clothing in the story of Joseph. But as we move on forward then, uh, and he gets to Egypt and he's sold into slavery. Uh, and then he rises in the house of Potiphar and he becomes quite influential and presumably, we would assume, becomes fairly well dressed as he assumes more and more uh, influence in the house of Potiphar. And then we have the next encounter with a garment in the story, and that's what? Potiphar's wife. And she strips him of his garment, or she takes his garment, or, or uh, uh, he, he left it there apparently, and she takes that garment and it becomes the means by which she accuses him falsely and, and he's thrown into prison. So, in, in two occasions, we see that Joseph has garments taken from him and the taking of the garments represents his overthrow. He's overthrown first from his position in the family and his favoritism with his father by the stripping of the coat of many colors. And then he's, then he's uh, 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 overthrown in the house of Potiphar with a garment. And then he's, then he's thrown into prison and he's in prison and then eventually he comes out of prison uh, and is brought to Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And after he successfully interprets Pharaoh's dreams, what happens? They bring, him, they bring him garments. And once again, he's clothed in royal garments. There's this promotion that he receives to be the grand vizier of Egypt. And he is given all these uh, fancy garments to wear. Okay? So this idea of garments has, has been significant all the way through the story of Joseph. And now we come to the, uh, to the climax of the story. And once again, this idea of the garments plays a key role in the story. And it's just quite amazing. In, in one sense, it's representative of the whole story of Joseph that what's going on here is that the man who has been stripped of his garments and sold into slavery by his brothers is now giving to his brothers garments to wear. And not just any garments. These uh, Throughout Scripture, when you encounter a, a deal like this where garments are given as a gift, they're typically very special garments. They're the kind of garments you wear for special occasions. You know, it's the stuff you got for Christmas. You know, and you usually don't just wear it every day unless it's a pair of jeans you've been waiting for. You know, it's not the kind of thing you wear every day, but it's that nice shirt, you know, or that nice sweater or that nice dress or whatever that you got for Christmas and you save it and you wear it for special occasions. And these brothers have been given by the man whom they stripped of his garments. Garments to wear for a special occasion. And to Benjamin, of course, he gives five. 
And so then is the great send-off, and they're sent back to Egypt. And as you can just see this picture of the brothers, and they've come with their donkeys, and now their donkeys are all loaded down with grain. And now they got ten, they got twenty more donkeys because they got ten donkeys for for Jacob loaded with just loot, and then they've got ten uh, donkeys that are loaded with food. You know, ten donkeys of food for one guy for his transfer, you know, for a ten-day trip back to Egypt. You know, ten, eleven-day trip back to Egypt. So you know, and so they got. 20 donkeys plus the other 10 donkeys or however many they had and you got all this stuff and you got all these garments and you got these guys and you have this big sending off party. And Jacob is sending them off back to Canaan and what does he tell them? Don't quarrel. Do not quarrel on the way. Why would he say that? Well, maybe, although I think... They're going to have a discussion of what are they going to tell Dad. Yeah, yeah they're, they're going to have to fess up to Dad at some point. It's interesting that the narrative totally blanks that out. We have no idea how or when Dad gets told about the real truth. Okay, uh, It does become clear later in the narrative that Dad knows. But how he knows, how he was told, we don't know. But here these guys are going back, and what Jacob is trying to, or excuse me, what Joseph is trying to tell them is, guys, the time for recrimination is over. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. This is not a time to be bickering and fighting among yourselves over who did what. Just enjoy the moment. Just go home in the knowledge that you're forgiven and that you were invited to Egypt to come and live in safety and security and comfort. And, and so he sends them on their way and they come to Dad. And they come to Dad and, and it appears that when they first speak to their father, he's in his tent. And I say that because it seems from the narrative that he doesn't see this whole parade of stuff, okay? He hasn't seen all the donkeys and he hasn't seen the wagons and stuff when they first speak to him. And so they come in to speak to him and once again, the story kind of blanks out things I would like to know. I'd like to know who got to tell him, you know? Was it Judah? Was Judah the one who had broken the dam and facilitated the forgiveness by his confession and his plea and his willingness to offer himself as a sacrifice for Benjamin? Was it Judah who got the opportunity? We don't know who got the opportunity. Maybe they all blurted it out. You know, it it must have been interesting. And I'm sure they, there was some probably some strategizing before they got there as to how they were going to do it. But they go in and they tell him, Joseph is alive. Indeed. It's emphasized. Indeed, he is the ruler over all of Egypt. And then what does it say was Jacob's response? Okay, what's the, what's the first thing it says? He was stunned. Okay. Now, what's interesting about that word is very difficult for the translators to translate. And so you'll encounter various, various different translations of it. The New American, and I think the New International says he was stunned. Uh, the uh, King James says uh, his heart was weak or something to that effect. Uh, or numb, I think the English, English Standard Version says his heart was numb. Okay. Now... I think the use of the word stunned there is a little unfortunate because it leads us to presume something that's clear from the narrative is not true. Okay. Uh, because when I read that, he was stunned. I, I think, you know, well, he's reacting to this great news that his son is alive, right? But that's not how he's reacting. Because quite clearly, he does not believe it. That's what the text says. So whatever is happening emotionally inside of Jacob at this moment is not happening because he's suddenly discovered that Joseph is alive. What's happening emotionally inside of him is happening because he does not believe what his sons are telling him. He doesn't have a lot of reason to believe. These guys don't have a great reputation. (laughs) 
And the Egyptians and them, I mean, how close was that relationship anyway? Between the Egyptians and the rest of the world? Well, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why he would have reason to doubt. I mean, these are the same guys that sacked and murdered the entire city of Shechem. So, he's got reason to doubt these guys. And as we've seen as we've gone through the narrative, he hadn't even been sure all along that the story they were telling him about Joseph was right. Because we saw those hints along the line that, that Jacob never was really sure he'd gotten a straight story. And so now they come back and they say Joseph is still alive and he doesn't believe them. And, and so the, the picture there that really we should get of, 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 of Jacob is, is somebody who is, who is just withdrawn into a shell. His uh, one commentator translates it or gives gives a translation uh, that his heart is is rid has has assumed a rigid a rigidity through coldness. Another one says his heart is numb and weak. And and so the idea here is that his sons have come to him and they have told him that Joseph is alive and here is Jacob who for 22 years has been led to believe or has at least been told that, that Joseph is dead. And, and now these sons of his with whom he has not a great deal of confidence have come to him and told him that Joseph is alive and his response is, how can you do this to me? How can you play with me like this? And it's that, it's almost that deer in the headlight look is, I cannot believe this is happening to me again. It's like what his brothers have done, what the brothers have done to, from Jacob's perspective, is they've just drug up all the pain of the past and they're going to make him go through it again. They're going to try and entice him into believing that Joseph is alive, only for him to discover again that he is not. And I think what he's doing right here is he's looking at his sons and he's going, I can't believe you're doing this to me. Why would you do this to me? Don't you know what I've gone through for the last 22 years? And he just, it's like this shell around him. This numbness in his heart. And all of it comes because he does not believe his sons. So he is stunned, he is numbed, he is hardened. And, and, and clearly, from the way the text is written, this happens as a result of the sons coming to him at this point and telling him that Joseph is alive. It's not the response we wanted to see, was it? We wanted the sons to just come and for Jacob just to very easily, you know, just very easily accept it and be excited and thrilled. And this is not the response we wanted. But this is the reality. This is what sin does and this is what unbelief does. Unbelief makes it so that the best news we could ever hear sounds terrible to us. That's exactly what he's doing. He's protecting some Gary. It seems like he's just waiting Yeah, because there's been the whole thing with Benjamin. You know, he's so worried about Benjamin and stuff. Yeah, and and this has kind of been the story of Jacob's life, hasn't it? That at one turn after another, bad stuff happens to him. Of course, we know why. Because he walked so often in the flesh. But so he's so he's here and he's and he's struggling with this and he has this this kind of he's just kind of staring. It's like he's gone into an emotional coma here. But what I was going to say is. It's exacerbated at this point when the brothers arrive and tell him the news. But I think this is the way Jacob's been living for 22 years. A guy whose heart is numb, 
whose heart is rigid and cold because of all the things that have happened. And so then the brothers began to tell him about what? What do they begin to do? They begin to tell him Joseph's words. Now remember, back in the first part of the chapter, Joseph had sent a specific message for Dad. He says, now you go home and you tell Dad this. And he told him exactly what to say. And, and, and so apparently, one of the things that's included in this as they are talking to Dad, as the sons are talking to Dad, is they're reporting exactly the message that Joseph has sent back. I assume also, though it's not clear in the text, I assume also that they're also telling him about that conversation they had after they were reconciled. How they all sat around and talked together. And I'm sure they're just telling him about all the things that Joseph said. What else did they do? Okay, what does it say in the text? After they told him the words, what else? They showed him what stuff? The wagons. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? All of the stuff that he brought back, you know, ten donkeys of, of loot and ten donkeys of food and, and all these changes of garments and Benjamin's 300 pieces of silver and all this. And what is it that tips the scale to faith? It's the wagons. Why the wagons? Why not all the loot? Why not all the donkeys? Why not all the... Because the wagons come from Egypt with the emblems and symbols of power and authority. You can imagine, if these are military wagons, as I assume they are, how are they adorned? <laughs> they have all the... The dormant and all the emblems of all the power and authority of Egypt. These brothers who have been known to sack and, and annihilate an entire city could have come up with all this other stuff. But, but it'd be a little hard to come by those wagons. It took a command of Pharaoh to get them out of Egypt. And it says that the Spirit of their father Jacob was revived. And he said, it is enough. My son Joseph is alive. And I will go see him before I die. And I think when the spirit of Jacob's revived at that point, he was not just reviving from that immediate hardness and coldness. I think he was reviving from 22 years. And I think there's hope and there's joy in the heart of Jacob at this point that he has not known for over two decades. <clears throat> well, that's the story. And it's a wonderful story, isn't it? But it is just a mere shadow of the reality of the gospel that we believe. There are just some striking analogies or allegories, if you will, in this story that represent for us the gospel and what we experience in the gospel. And to see it, to some degree, we kind of have to reverse some of the types and symbols that we see in Scripture because to see them in this story, we're going to have to reverse some things like most of the time we think of Egypt as the world and Canaan as the promised land. But in this story, if we want to see the analogy, we have to flip that <laughs> and we have to see Canaan as the world and Egypt as the promised land. Right. OK. Similarly, in this story, this is going to be a little hard for you to do, but you're going to have to see Pharaoh as father, as God. <laughs> OK. Because we see Joseph as, as we have oftentimes in this story, as a type of Christ. Okay? And he's functioning here as the mediator between Pharaoh 
and the sons of Jacob. Okay? But if you, if you do that, if you, if you allow yourself to think in those terms, then you begin to see some really cool pictures. First of all, you see Pharaoh who extends this gracious invitation to the sons of Jacob simply because they are Joseph's brothers. You see why the incarnation is so important? We are his brothers. The Father cares for us because we are Christ's brothers. He did that. When He left the ivory palaces and came down and took on flesh and walked among us and we beheld His glory. And now we are of His flesh and He is of our flesh and the Father extends to us grace and invitation to come to Him. It's a personal invitation because we are Christ's brothers. And then He gives this remarkable invitation and He says, you come. He says, you can have the best of the land. You can eat the fat of the land. The best of everything is available to you if you will come. But to do it, you've got to be willing to forget all your stuff. You're going to have to leave that stuff behind. God is calling us to, to enjoy all the wealth and the riches, the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. And He's calling us to that. And so oftentimes we don't ever get really to taste of that because we're still hanging on to all our stuff. All this tawdry, cheap imitations of what's offered to us in the kingdom of God. And so we cling to our things and our stuff and our clothes and our cars and our houses and our, and our computers and our iPhones and all our fancy stuff and all our gadgets and we love them and we cling to those and in clinging to those we fail to taste of the fat of the land that's ours by the invitation of the Father because He loves us. <clears throat> and then another striking parallel to me is, is here's Joseph who in our little analogy here is a type of Christ. And here is Joseph, and Joseph, through his great suffering, has purchased the salvation of his family, has he not? He's gone through all this suffering, and then ultimately his exaltation, Philippians chapter 2. He's gone through all this suffering, and then ultimately the exaltation, in order that he might redeem the family. So who goes back to redeem? Who goes back to tell the news to the family and to invite them to Egypt? The brothers go back. The redeemed ones go back. Not Joseph. Joseph doesn't go back to tell the family, "Come, you've been invited." He sends the brothers back. Isn't that exactly what Christ did in Matthew 28? He did the suffering and He has been exalted to the Father's right hand and He is there and He is waiting for you and I to extend the invitation to our families. To tell them they've been invited to come to the kingdom of God and to have the best of the land and to eat the, eat the fat of the land. And so it's really the brother's responsibility, not Joseph's. It's the brother's responsibility to go back and tell the family and bring them back to Egypt. <clears throat> and so he sends them off to do this. But what does he send them with? Two things. 
new garments and the spirit in the form of the wagons. <laughs> okay, I, that's an interesting analogy. I didn't think of that. But, okay, the spirit in the form of the wagons. That's a good one. Yeah, okay. yeah. As a pledge, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. But the garments. Pardon? He sets them apart, he changes their appearance. But what's striking here, <clears throat> all, all that is too, and we'll get to that. But, but before we get to that, is here is the one whom we stripped naked and hung on a cross. And what has he done for us? He's turned around and gives, gives to us garments of his righteousness. Garments that are worn on a special occasion, right? What's the special occasion? When are we going to put those things on and wear them? The marriage supper of the Lamb, right? Revelations. So here's this one who, whom we stripped naked, whom we overthrew, whom we crucified, and has returned for our great crime. What does He do? But He gives to us garments of righteousness that we will wear into the kingdom. And He sends the wagons. And Okay, I like that analogy of the Holy Spirit. Okay. I was kind of halfway there in my thinking. You got me all the way there. I like that analogy of, 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 of the wagons. He sends the wagons. And so they go back to Jacob. And the news comes to Jacob that Joseph is alive. And what's his initial response? He didn't believe it. And since he doesn't believe it, we have to assume that he is somewhat resentful or bitter that he's being told this. Is this not how people respond oftentimes when they hear the gospel? Why would you tease me or tantalize me or provoke me with something like this? Because they don't believe. And so they go into their shell. Their hearts are numb and cold and rigid. What breaks that coldness and that numbness and that rigidness? But before faith comes what? Hearing. hearing. And before hearing comes what? The Word. That's what Romans tells us, right? Faith comes from hearing. Hearing comes from the Word of God. What is it that Jacob hears that transforms his heart and revives his heart? It's the words of Joseph. And the brothers come and as they begin to tell Jacob what Joseph said, his heart begins to warm and melt and soften. And then he sees those wagons. <laughs> he sees the obvious manifestation of the power of the kingdom. And he goes, that's it. I'll never forget. I can remember exactly where I was sitting in a hotel conference room in a hotel south of Tokyo in Japan when I first heard this, and I can still remember how much it thrilled my heart. When a brother was sharing and he said, you know at Pentecost, you know why the disciples were so excited at Pentecost? When the Holy Spirit came. It wasn't just that they had received the Holy Spirit. But what had Christ said to them before He left about the coming of the Holy Spirit? 
He said, I am going to go to my father. And when I get to my father, I will send the Holy Spirit. And when those disciples were standing there at Pentecost and those tongues of fire were coming down upon them and they were beginning to speak in tongues and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit was so clear, what is going through their minds? He's there. He's there. We saw Him ascend into the clouds, but now we know He's there at the right hand of the Father. Doesn't that just send chills down your spine? He's really there. And when we as Christians live in the power of the Holy Spirit, it proves to the world that Christ is alive and that He is there at the right hand of the Father. And the result is that when many see that, their hearts will be revived. And they will say, with Jacob of old, it is enough. Christ is alive. I will go to see Him before I die. Yeah, wonderful story. Wonderful story. Okay, well, next week we'll get the story of how Jacob leaves Canaan and heads towards Egypt and he's got to make a very important stop along the way and we'll talk about that next week.